Hello, friends. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. And this is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. It's where we see how hard things can become good things and how beautiful things grow from the barest of ground. When our story today begins, the woman we spoke to was in the midst of some very hard things. The journey she spoke to us about was difficult and faced us with some hard questions. Who gets to be a mother or a father? What is reasonable to expect from our children? And she begins a real conversation on the joyful and painful ways in which families grow. This is another installment in our adoption suite, and we're so happy to have an opportunity to tell the story. Let's start with an introduction. Um, so my name is Jill. I'm an artist and a dancer. Um, i a dance educator at this point primarily, and I've lived in New York City for 15 years. And she's done pretty well at all of that. She is and was a productive, contributing member of society. She has a master's degree. She's worked for several companies. And as a teacher, she's seen her students learn and grow and flourish. At the outset of the story, she had a pretty solid circle of support. And she also has a mental illness. Jill suffers from fairly serious depression at times, but had always managed it well enough. But then, in 2012, the bottom fell out. So I was teaching in a school um, and lost that job, um, which was really difficult for me, and things just went downhill. Um, It was the first time I was hospitalized for my mental illness. Um, Even though I've been, I've had and suffered from and treated my mental illness almost all my life, it was the first time I I was hospitalized. And um, the year after that, I lost my apartment. I had been in the apartment for 11 years, and they didn't have to renew the lease, and they wanted somebody that was going to pay more. The year before, my rent had gone up $300. And they could have raised it more, but they just wanted to be able to get new blood and new, more money and that kind of thing. And so I lost my apartment, and I didn't have a job to pay a first month's rent and a last month's rent and a... You know, and when I found out that I was going to lose my apartment, I ended up in the hospital again. And they wouldn't actually let me out of the hospital because I didn't have a place to go to, they said. Because even though it wasn't the end of the month and I, didn't, I hadn't lost my apartment yet, they felt like I didn't have a place to go. And in New York City, it's, you're not allowed to let somebody, a patient out of a psychiatric ward without a place to go. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't able to get my deposit back, which was a large sum of money. It was a two-month deposit. And I could have gotten another apartment with that, but I wasn't able to because I wasn't able to move the things out of my apartment. Um, So I um, didn't have another place to go. And I was feeling a lot of pressure from family members to leave New York. Um, but I knew that's not what I wanted to do, and that wasn't a healthy thing for me to do. And um, But the most pressure that I was feeling was actually from my bishop. Um, he didn't feel like I belonged in New York. He didn't feel like I could support myself, that I was mentally fit enough to live in New York, that only certain people were designed to live in New York. And that I, at this point, have proven myself unworthy of living in New York. Jill's bishop bought her a plane ticket so she could go live with her dad. And, without any other options, she reluctantly got on the plane. 
then when my father called me a um, a judgmental, offensive person, I got back on the plane. I left. So I was there for a month, and I left um, because I didn't think it was a healthy place. He felt like I was listening to doctors in New York tell me that I was sick and that I could make myself better if I wanted to. And I didn't feel that way. I'd, that was not my experience. That was not my, um, you know, he didn't know me. He hadn't lived with me since I was 10 years old. And he didn't have the background to understand. So I didn't feel like living there was benefiting me. So I left. And um, I went to Utah for a month. But that also was a toxic um, relationship for my mental health. And so I came back to New York and I house sat for two weeks. And then I went to a homeless shelter. And basically at a homeless shelter, it's like you check yourself into, you like, you do intake and they assess you and then are given a bed in the middle of the night and you go into this large room where you're sleeping with many, many women and you have a locker and a bed and, and you're not sure what's happening but you try to go to sleep and um, anybody who in New York City who goes to a homeless shelter who is has been diagnosed with a mental illness automatically is placed in a shelter for women with mental illness and chemical abuse um, problems. And so uh, the acronym for that is MICA. So I was placed in a MICA shelter. Um, in New York City, you have to go to a shelter that is an intake shelter. And then they assess your psychosocial wellness and uh, several things and financial Thing, things and like whether or not you have a place to go that they determine whether you have a place to go or not and then they make a placement for you and so there are many there are lots of shelters around the city but you don't just go to any shelter you want to you are placed in a shelter and so even though I had lived in Manhattan for 12 years and even though I had my community my religious community my um social circles, everything was based in Manhattan and in Harlem primarily. I was um, placed in a mica shelter in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I um, went to that shelter and at that time I really started to really be bitter about a lot of things that were happening because it was the shelter system is really difficult. It's the next step to being in jail. You have to be there at 10 o'clock or you lose your bed. Your possessions are locked in a locker and the only possessions you can have are the ones that fit in your locker. Um, I was constantly, you know, like there was a woman that didn't like me and so she poured water on my bed. Or people would say, things about me because I was white or because of my religion or because of different things like that. And um, 
it's it's just it's not a it's not a comfortable place and they don't want you to be comfortable and that's fine um but i didn't have a place to go while jill was in this uncomfortable situation there were other things that were bothering her and bringing her down even lower one was that someone could tell her that she wasn't worthy of living in new york city and send her away from her home another was that um I wasn't married and that I had never really been um, people that were of my religion were not interested in me and as long as I had lived in New York had not shown interest in me when I was in Utah I was I found a lot more people that were interested in me but in New York it wasn't so but New York was my home so I was, I, was like, I was angry that that couldn't be a part of my life, that having a significant other and having a family and having what I had been raised to believe was what I wanted and finding myself in a homeless shelter, that was a hard thing. During that difficult time when she was struggling not only with the fact of being homeless, but with the feelings of being unworthy, or seen as unworthy, of living in New York and of finding love there, it was easy for her religious beliefs to slide while she waded through the situation. So while she believes in fairly traditional conservative values, she had some needs that needed to be filled. She knew at the time that the relationship she was having with this man was not something she wanted to continue long term. It wasn't really an emotional relationship. But it was filling a physical and a psychological need, and in a time of so much loss and deprivation, that was something. And during those months when she was living in the homeless shelter, things did start to turn around. So I got a job in March, I got an apartment in August, I quit the job in January, and I found out I was pregnant um, February 7th. There was never a moment of... um, This can't be happening to me. I don't know what's, you know, this can't be. Because I knew what I was doing. I knew. But I also knew that I didn't want to be a mom in my situation. Um, I knew that I wanted more for my child. And that he deserved more. So I almost immediately thought of adoption, um, and yet I knew how hard that would be to... I didn't know how hard it would be, I knew how hard it could be. And so um, I really had to carefully ask myself, how do I feel like so my sister said to me um, I told my sister she was the only person that I told that I was pregnant in my family and she said to me you know this baby would make you really happy and I said well that's really nice but um, it's not about my happiness about the baby's happiness. 
about the baby's well-being. It's about everything for the baby. It doesn't have anything to do with me. This is a child. This is a, a, another person's life. It's not what, what that person's life can do for me. It's what either I can do for that person or what that person needs to be the person that they can be. It's not, oh, that this child is going to bring me happiness, which I haven't had up to this point. Well, I'm sorry for you, but my happiness isn't the primary concern at this point. Maybe we should take a moment to clarify the situation a bit. Jill had a conversation with their therapist soon after she found out she was pregnant. The therapist encouraged Jill to think carefully about what she did next because in her practice, she often saw people who were unwanted as children. The implication, Jill felt, was that because this child was unplanned, he, the baby turned out to be a boy, was unwanted. But that couldn't have been further from the truth. Jill had very much wanted a baby, had hoped to be a mother for most of her life. The fact that she hadn't gotten married yet did not change the fact that she still hoped to be a mom. But that strong desire did not alter the reality of her situation, and Jill knew that, as much as she wanted to be a mom, she wasn't in a position to be the mom that she wanted to be. I was raised in a home where there was not a lot of emotional support. There was not a lot of love. There was not a lot of um, nurturing. There was a lot of um, certain kinds of support. However, I wasn't raised with a unconditional love. And I think that's what every child needs, regardless of whether they are, um, they were planned for or not. Unconditional love is what helps us become individuals that can go out into the world and interact with the world in a healthy way. And that hadn't been my experience. Sure, I was up to 2012 a successful individual. I, I was educated, I had a master's degree, I um, had worked for several um, great companies, I had successfully taught um, students and had seen wonderful things and growth in them and felt like I was giving them, you know, so I, I was a dance, I am a dance teacher and I feel like I often say that I teach life through dance because that's how I learned about life, was through dancing. And that's what saved my life. And I, um, want to give that to my students. And I think I was, and am successful at that. And, um, But that can't be everything because I needed unconditional love and I needed more than just dance lessons when I was growing up and it wasn't there for me. And so I knew, I knew that this child deserved that.
and I knew I could give them unconditional love. And that that is one thing I could definitely give them. But I was limited in so many other ways, just by my circumstances at the time. So despite her desire to give the child the unconditional love she felt she had missed out on growing up, before the month was over, Jill had contacted two families she knew of that might be open to adoption. One was a local family she had known in New York, and the other lived across the country in Utah. The family in Utah had another adoption on the horizon, but the New York family was ready and willing to adopt Jill's baby. But Jill had one stipulation. My only stipulation for any family that adopted him was that it needed to be an open adoption because that was the one thing I knew that... I, I know I said before that adoption could be difficult, but would it be difficult? I knew that it would absolutely be difficult if I didn't have any contact with the child and, and any ability to see how they were growing up. Um, my main concern for my child from a biological standpoint is their mental well-being. Um, I, I think that mental illness runs in my family and that it needs to be a consideration that this is a possibility for him. And so I know that there were biological and um, environmental factors in my own mental illness, but that biological factors alone can influence that. And so as much as the family wanted to raise the child to be happy, it's not enough to just think that it's going to be, that a good environment is going to be enough. And um, so as much as I wanted the happiness of my child to be the, my first priority, I also felt like um, me being able to help a family that didn't have experience with the biological side of mental illness understand and see signs or know how to help or deal with it. Um, and I love children and to not be able to see how my own child see their happiness and see their milestones would be I wouldn't be able to place a child for adoption with a closed adoption the family had another daughter whom they had adopted in an open adoption so they were familiar with the arrangement and were happy to enter into another one the only hiccup in the negotiations from Jill's perspective was deciding how frequently she could see the baby when they adopt a family named Felix her hope was to be able to see him every couple of months six times a year but the adoptive family, perhaps because their daughter's biological mother lives out of state and is only able to see her twice a year, thought that two times would be enough. In the end, the legal agreement stipulated two visits a year. With an adoptive family found, Jill settled into a fairly uneventful pregnancy. She consulted with maternal psychiatric doctors who helped her find safe and effective doses of her medication to be on throughout her pregnancy. Though the pregnancy hormones seemed to help her psychologically, making her suspect that her mental illness has a hormonal aspect to it. 
She also did the hard work of helping the biological father through her decision, which is actually still an ongoing process. I remember when you came home from the hospital and I brought you some dinner, and at the time you were, um, you were texting with Felix's biological father, and he was not being very supportive, I believe. Right. So what kind of, um, I mean, how, how did you handle that situation? Did he have to give up his rights? He basically gave up his rights by not being emotionally or physically supportive during the pregnancy. Um, because if he wanted to have his rights in the state of New York, he needed to show that before the baby was born. Not legally. Like, that's legally the way it is. New York City rocks. <laughs> Everyone should move to New York City. <laughs> so he could fight it after the baby was born, but he would have less... Um, probability of winning because he did not offer any physical or emotional support during the pregnancy. And he knew you were pregnant. He knew I was pregnant and he wanted me to get rid of the baby. Um, at first, that was his initial reaction. His second reaction was, well, we're going to live together and raise the baby. And when I said, no, we're not, he said, well, then you can give me the baby. I said, mm, no, not really. <laughs> Thanks, though. <laughs> he, uh, culturally, he doesn't understand adoption at all. And I didn't know that until a friend of mine who works in the like the psychology field who works with uh, a lot of she speaks Spanish as a second language and so she works with a lot of the Hispanic culture in the state where she lives um, I didn't know call me naive I, I didn't think of other cultures as having different approaches to adoption and so I didn't know that in the Hispanic culture you just take care of your own no matter what you don't give your child to somebody else even if you think they're going to take care of it better than you could you just do what you have to do to take care of your child the best that you can um, he talked about taking the baby to Mexico to his family he um, he just there was like no concept of me giving up my baby and he still 16 months later has days where he, he texts me and he says I don't ever want to talk to a person that could give up the baby he um, tells me that he wakes up at night and can't sleep because he's sad that he can't have his child that he can't see him whenever he wants that he can't go and be alone with this child and um, I don't I, I to a certain degree I don't understand I don't understand that and I don't 
sometimes I think, well, something's wrong with me. Like I'm not, I don't feel the things for my child that I should. And, uh, and other times I think, well, I, I, am I missing something? But he did make a remark once that he, that this event has made him want to become a, make some changes in his life and do some better things in life. And it's interesting. I mean, I don't. editorialize too much on your story, but like, of course, like, I don't think that, like, you lack, you know, a proper maternal spirit about it. I mean, it, you said from the, from two months on, you were certain that, that this was the right choice. Right. Not that it was, that was, it was an easy choice, but it was the, that it was the right choice. And I think maybe, conversely, like, his he choice, maybe like that. Yeah, like he didn't have that time, and, and maybe not even the ability to make the distinction between the right choice and the choice that you kind of want to make. Now we don't have the time nor the resources here to delve deeper into the biological father's story, but no matter how obvious this is, it's worth pointing out that every child has two parents, and that every parent has a story. There is a lot of talk about mother's body, mother's choice. And the impact on fathers isn't something we really think much about in situations like this. Felix's father made his choice through his actions during the pregnancy, whether he meant to or not. But the fact that he is still coming to grips with the fate of his child nearly two years after his birth should maybe give us all some food for thought. Perhaps the most unusual part of Jill's pregnancy was the fact that a month before her due date, she got a job. She started teaching dance to autistic children at a middle school in the Bronx. There was a principal that took a chance on me. <laughs> and I was willing to go to work eight months pregnant and teach dance. <laughs> I don't know, I don't, I'm not saying other people wouldn't be willing to do that, but I'm not, I'm also not saying it was the easiest thing in the world to not have been teaching dance throughout my pregnancy and to just walk into a school eight months pregnant and start teaching dance every day, five classes a day. <laughs> And um, so for a month, almost a month exactly, that's what I did. Your last month. <laughs> yes, my last month. Very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> but I knew it's what I wanted. And I knew that after I had the baby, that I knew that it wouldn't do me any good to say, well, I'm going to have a baby and then I'll figure out my life. You know, mm -hmm. because... I'd already made, pretty much made a solid decision that I was going to place him for adoption and that um, I didn't want to put my life on hold for that when I had waited already three years to find a principal that was willing to take a chance on me again. And so... I did what I had to do, yeah. and it worked out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not saying it would work out for everybody, but it worked out for <laughs> You're me. You're recommending that as a sort of a course <laughs> of, uh, of action. Although it might have been a 
large factor in in his his actual birth, which I would highly recommend. Oh, I've, I've heard that. I've heard like I've heard dance teachers say that it was that they like went into labor doing like a wide second plie. Well, I went into to labor and the birth was the the from beginning to end it was like six hours and forty five minutes. She had only been working for a few weeks when she went into labor. As with many women, it was not immediately apparent what was happening. Her teacher's chair was uncomfortable, and of course, she was nine months pregnant, so discomfort was part of the package anyway. So she went through her day as well as she could until she was partway through teaching a class of low-functioning autistic children. She quickly realized that teaching dance was not going to happen, so she switched plans and decided they would draw dancers instead. She planned to get someone to take the rest of her classes during the passing period, but her next class, a group of eight rambunctious, high-functioning autistic boys, arrived before she had a chance. Jill couldn't leave them alone, and the paraprofessional who was supposed to be there was late to come back from her lunch. So Jill bit the bullet and tried to teach for the next five to ten minutes, but then decided she needed to get help. The paraprofessional next door went to get an administrator to take over Jill's class, and Jill went to the office to wait for Felix's adoptive mom to come take her to the hospital. It wasn't until Jill had been waiting for a while that she thought to time her contractions. They were a minute long, with a minute between each one. She started to get a little impatient, not to mention the awkwardness of laboring in a school office with parents coming in and out. She finally decided she needed to get a move on and called a taxi. But by the time the taxi got there, Felix's mother was just a few minutes away, so the driver took Jill a couple of blocks to her car, where she got her hospital bag and then drove with Felix's mom to the hospital. Felix was born three hours later. It was... um... I don't want to use the word easy, but it was, well, so the laboring was mm-hmm. not too hard, but the birth itself was really, really beautiful. It was really beautiful. And um, I had a doula, and she was there for an hour, so she was able to help me physically and Felix's mother helped me emotionally. Um, I think having the doula was really helpful. I remember at one point asking her, how much worse is it gonna get? And she's like, this is it, you're doing it. But I was able to see the moment that Felix came out and it was just the most beautiful moment. It was so, I thought, wow, that, like, I, I can't even describe how beautiful it was. And, and as much as I enjoyed seeing his, his mother with him um, right after he was born, and she, both she and I had skin-to-skin contact immediately, the next most beautiful moment was when his father got there because he wasn't able to be there for the birth, but he came in as soon as he could, and... Um, The look on his face as he held Felix for the first time. And Felix reached his little hand up and touched his face. It's such a precious memory to me. Because that's everything that I wanted for Felix. There was so much love in that room. 
probably more loves that I've ever experienced in my life. It's just a very, very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful time. And I will especially treasure the time that I got to spend with him in the hospital. Um, his mother was there a lot, but she would go home in, in at night to at least get a few hours of sleep. And um, so for a few hours at night, I was there alone with him. Knowing that it was the only time I would ever have with him alone when he was mine. Because I knew for a certainty that I wanted him to have the love that I felt from his parents when he was born. In all the time Joel was pregnant, and in the time since Felix was born, Joel has never doubted that she made the right choice. But it was, as she knew it could be, and probably would be, difficult. Especially the moment Felix went home with his family, and Joel went home to her apartment. The hardest, hardest moment was after we left the hospital, he left with me because we would have had to get um, hospital psychiatrists and psychologists involved and social workers involved if they had discharged him to his parents. Because you did a private adoption as opposed to I did through an agency. Yes. <laughs> And so he left with me, and, and so we went to, um, we left the hospital, and I, um, we went to a, like a diner across the street from the hospital, and had some lunch, and I had invited a friend who, to come be with me because I didn't feel like I could send my baby home with somebody else and just be standing there alone. And so I had a friend with me. Um, so we enjoyed a fun lunch or dinner. I don't even remember. I think it was late by that time. Late afternoon. And uh, we talked and laughed and enjoyed Felix and, and then it was time us to separate ways, you know, because up to the point we'd been together with him, and I held him for the last time, and I put him in the car seat, and I tucked the blanket around him, and I walked away, and that was the hardest part. And there hasn't been a harder moment since then. 
I signed the papers, I think two or three days later. And I think I shed some tears, but definitely didn't feel the same kind of sadness. Because I've been able to see him and because I've seen how happy he is and how happy his family is, I, I've just been at peace the whole time. There's never been a time when I didn't feel peace. Although she felt comfortable and solid in her decision, Jill still had to contend with her mental illness. Her doctor had been fairly certain she should get on a strong dose of medication before her hormone levels dropped too precipitously. She was definitely aware of that, but she switched medication several months after Felix was born, and it took a while to find a dosage that worked. I started the new medication. and It helped, but it didn't help enough until we ramped up the, the dosage to a certain amount, and... Um, I remember one day being in the train and just having a really, really hard day psychologically for myself. I mean, it had nothing to do with Felix and it just thinking how happy I was that Felix was with his family. And he didn't have to experience my sadness. And I just texted her and said, I'm so grateful for you today because I'm having a really bad day and I knew there would be days like this. And I knew that I wouldn't be able to handle everything on days like this. And so I'm just so glad that you can be there for him. There have been other moments, other ways that Jill felt supported because of this experience. She told us about becoming homeless, about how her bishop bought her a plane ticket and sent her away. It was different when she became pregnant. Yeah, that's actually, that is a big thing for me because the experience I had when I became homeless and the experience I had when I became pregnant are... 180 degrees opposite. Really? Yeah. So, on the one hand, where my, when I became homeless, my bishop bought me a plane ticket and shipped me off to the side of the country, uh, my ward really rallied around me when I told them that I was pregnant. I had been in the ward for six months and I had gone to church maybe at the most six times. I mean they knew who I was but they didn't know a lot about me. I think there were two things. I think one that I didn't judge myself and I didn't say well this isn't the place for, my, for me um, but I also let People welcomed me and, and, and let me, and I let them let me have a place there, even if I wasn't perfect or if I didn't meet certain expectations. 
and never felt judged. And I never felt unwanted the way I had previously. The fact that Jill did not judge herself, did not assume that no one would want to help her or love her or be around her was, I think, another very important decision she made. It certainly was a consequential decision from my perspective. Having the opportunity to be a part of her experience, to share wisdom with her at her birthing party, to take her some soup the night she came home from the hospital after tucking Felix into his car seat and watching him ride away in the opposite direction. I certainly felt and feel a lot of love for Jill having shared a small part of this experience with her. And although there were many aspects of this experience that were undoubtedly a burden as much as anybody could bear, there were some parts of it that were healing in a way. Relationships that came out of it, of course, but more than that, a sense of God's love for her. I feel I can relate a lot more to the women in my church. <laughs> like, and they can relate to me in a lot of ways. A uh, few years before I got pregnant, when I still had a job or when I still had a home, I, um, I remember having this really strong feeling that maybe God just didn't want me to be a mom. Maybe I wasn't meant to be a mom because of my, because of my mental health. At that time, it took everything I had to keep my job. I would go to work and I would come home and I would go to sleep and I would wake up and I would go to work and I would come home and I would go to sleep. And I would sleep on the weekends. And if I wasn't sleeping, I was, maybe I would do laundry or sometimes I ate. Sometimes I went to see my therapist. I would usually take medicine at night, but it was either I was at work or I was sleeping. And I thought, no, he doesn't want me to be a mom. This is not how mothers, you, you can't be a mom and sleep all the time and be a mess. And, I mean, in a lot of ways I was feeling sorry for myself, but in some ways I was also really reflecting and thinking, you know, is this just that there's something wrong with me and that I'm not meant to be a mom? And now I know that that answer is no. for anybody but that I still think for myself I need to be in the right place before I can be a, the right kind of mother but that I could be a mother not only could she be a mother but she could help build a family even if it wasn't her own I know with a certainty that I made the right choice 16 months in retrospect, I know for certainty that I made the right choice. And I know that um, 
I actually feel honored to have been the person that could bring him to his family because they couldn't bring him to his family, but I could bring him to their family and he belongs with their family. He's so happy. And that's everything I wanted for him. Thanks, Jill, for sharing your story. We are grateful for your courage in telling it and also for your courage in choosing to do one of the most difficult things anyone could ask of a mother. Thanks to Ben Howell and Ellen Barnhart for the music, to Ryan Barnhart and to Micah Heisel, who, if it was him on that door in the middle of the ocean instead of Rose, Jack absolutely would have lived. Thank you for listening and for sharing stories with your friends and with your relatives. Rate us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and join in the conversation. So